oh, I didn't even think or consider this. And if you're not having to think or consider it, it's a privilege. Welcome to the Inclusive Leaders Podcast, the place where you'll hear strategic and tactical advice shared by diversity, equity, and inclusion experts. This podcast is brought to you by Matheson.io the world's first DEI operating system. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to www.matheson.io. The link to connect with us is in the description. Let's get back to the episode. All right, so Sasha, I know you as an incredibly powerful DEI leader, someone that is just, uh, that just shares incredibly um, impactful messages regarding DEI and best practices. But um, for people that don't know you, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. So first of all, thank you, Robert, for having me. Um, my name is Sasha Thompson, pronoun she, her. Um, I am the founder of the Equity Equation. I call myself the Inclusive Culture Curator. Um, because I believe that this work really is about curating cultures of inclusion um, versus just checking the box of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, so I work with organizations all sizes to help them kind of realize, okay, what does, what does inclusion look like for us and help them get there, right? So oftentimes it's a pie in the sky kind of vision that they have. And so how do we make that tangible for them? That's awesome. And you know, uh, right now, I think there's a kind of a focus on performative activism and people that, you know, they may not want to be performative that they are. Um, how do companies kind of avoid being performative when it comes to um, just being uh, intentional around their DEI practices externally? Yeah, so I think a lot of that has to come with and especially I'm glad you added that external part, right? It's the kind of what PR Right. So it's like, what right. do we want companies to see? And it comes across as inauthentic. Um, it's disconnected from what's actually happening within the organization. Um, it's they're looking at kind of what others are doing and saying, oh, you know, I want to do that. I want us to do that. And it's not natural to that organization or their culture. And so that's when it comes across as very performative. Um, I think where com companies and organizations can do better is really doing some reflective work, right? Self, who are we? What do we want to be? Um, is this a long journey for us? And be honest about that. If you haven't done anything at all, be honest, we haven't done anything at all, but we're starting the process. We're starting the journey. I think so many organizations don't want to seem like they're just starting the journey. Um, and so they try to jump in where they see other organizations that may have been doing this work long before 2020, right? There are a lot of organizations that were doing diversity and inclusion work long before that summer. Um, and so they're much more mature in their process. And so when organizations kind of jump in at that point and they're immature, then it starts to fall apart, right? Now your, your employees are asking, okay, what are y'all really doing? Because you weren't doing anything last week, but now all of a sudden Black Lives Matter, right? Mm, not so much. So, you know, it really is about being authentic to who you are and being reflective and honest about that journey. Right. I mean, I think it, from a certain perspective, I feel like it, it can kind of make sense for companies to be um, a little performative externally, not, not, you know, intentionally performative, but essentially, I know that companies 
want to fight above their weight class in so many ways, especially from an external perspective. Hey, we're this big, strong company. We have (laughs) so many. Yeah, right. Exactly. We have these resources and we actually don't. So I think uh, what you said is is so powerful. Um, And, you know, I know that when companies work with you, we know that they're not just getting a facilitator of kind of a cookie cutter training. Um, they're getting a, a really immersive experience. So could you talk a little bit about um, your process for upskilling companies when it comes to their inclusive practices? Yeah. And you know, and it actually ties back to the last question, right? So I was mm-hmm. getting called from um, organizations that were like, yeah, we did a little bit of work and unconscious bias and, you know, all of these other things and the, all the check the box things, right? All of the things that they're told that they need to do. And after having some conversations with some of the leaders, I'm realizing like, wait a minute, y'all don't even understand the basics of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so I have this series of workshops that I call kind of the foundation, right? They're experiential learning processes that people go through to really start to unpack, not just what this means for the organization, but what does it mean for me? How do I show up in this space? And so that can be anything from like, what are the basics of diversity, equity, and inclusion? and talking about the layers of who we are as individuals and how we show up in the workplace and how some aspects of us are more important to us, but others may never see that, right? So we talk about the iceberg and you may see me as a black woman, but you may not see that I'm an immigrant to this country, right? You don't hear that in my, at my accent or you don't hear that um, I'm a, a bonus mom to two boys with autism. You don't see that every day, but that's how I show up. And so those are the lenses that I see the world. And so once you start to unpack, how do I show up as an individual in this workplace? What's important to me? What's not important to me? Or what do I even hide from people or hide from myself, right? I don't even realize that it's something that's important to me. So we start kind of there and start to unpack that, go into inclusive communication and Some of that is a lot of people we hear will talk about, you know, I don't want to say the wrong thing or I don't want to do the wrong thing. Okay, let's unpack what that is. What are you trying to communicate? So, you know, we go through that. We talk about microaggressions. We talk about identities. We talk about um, generational differences because especially now in this pandemic and as folks wanting, you got to go back into the office. Folks are going back into the office for different reasons. Right. And so are we going in because we really want to be there? Are we going in because we need to check and make sure people are doing their jobs? So that's kind of what this experiential learning and it allows organizations to have conversations about this stuff in ways that they probably haven't. Right. How many times have you sat down with your CEO to talk about generational differences and how that impacts how people show up and how they communicate and how teams get put together or even how you are. creating products for your customers and clients, right? Are the folks that are on that team representative of your customer base? But generationally, racially, you know, with disabilities, all of that. So that's kind of what those sessions are. It allows organizations to unpack what this looks like for them and then start going into the work of, okay, where do we now need to go from here? Yeah. Wow. That sounds awesome. I, I kind of, I wish 
we could be a part of that. <laughs> I <feel> like, <laughs> but I know in some trainings, um, sometimes when questions are asked, for me personally, I'm like, well, my heart is racing right now. I don't really want to <laughs> answer that question, especially if I'm like emotional right now. And so, but I think through those moments, you you do grow. Those are kind of growth moments. Um, so it's cool that you have those types of trainings. Um, yeah, involved. and you just touched yeah. on something that I think is important, right? Yeah. Oftentimes we look to the folks that are most marginalized, like tell me your story, right? <laughs> tell me, tell me how it means, how it feels to be a black man in America. Right. Like we don't, I don't do that, right? But I do mm -hmm. use videos. I use um, scenarios to kind of bring light to it without having people step into that discomfort or have them put themselves at in positions that they're already vulnerable, right? Yeah. To now put a spotlight on that. So that's not their job to do, right? So I always say Google is free, but I help organizations kind of figure out how to do their own research and how to look at the data so that it will start telling them the stories that they know that they may not realize are happening within their organizations. Right, and I think when you um, take the, kind of the perception or take the uh, the lens off of yourself and look at like maybe a movie or a video or something like that, it forces you to have a little bit more empathy for the different characters and things like that. So that's, that's beautiful. Um, and, and so when we talk about uh, identity, I know you kind of mentioned that you touched on it a little bit, but I think it can be challenging for people um, to share theirs with their job. You know, I, I know that like self-identification is actually a challenge right now um, mm -hmm. with companies. Um, especially if companies uh, or team members in those companies don't feel psychologically safe. Yeah. Um, could you share your thoughts about like the experiential sh sessions around um, like identity? Yeah. So, you know, that session I think is probably the one <laughs> that people have to sit with for a while. Um, not because it's heavy in that I'm throwing a bunch of negative things at you. It's, oh, I didn't even think or consider this. And if you're not having to think or consider it, it's a privilege, right? For those that are in those communities, they have to think about it all the time. And so for identities, we part of it is also about explaining um, what certain aspects of identity are. So we talk about uh, gender, sexual orientation, and race. Those are the three that I kind of focus on in that particular one. I'm gonna do a separate one um, on disability, because that's a whole other area that really needs to kind of be tackled in a way that organizations aren't doing that right now. So for identity, we talk about, um, you know, being cisgendered, being transgender, um, being, you know, having gender on a, bi on a, that is not binary, right? So what does that look like? What does that mean? So we start to define words for people. Um, LGBTQ plus, right? Folks are like, okay, that's just one group. No, that's several groups. And so we talk about what each one of those mean. And, you know, like the Q for queer, for some generations, that's a slur, right? They were told to never say queer, whereas younger generations own that. And so how do you have that conversation, right? So we talk about those things. We talk about um, how if you see someone with browner skin that's black, they may or may not be American, right? And so, you know, talk about the statistics that over 47% of the population in the US that's black were not 
born in the United States, right? So what does that, how does that impact how they show up at work, right? If they don't have that, um, the same mentality or same experience, you know, we talk about um, in the Asian community, how there's, you know, hundreds of languages and different cultures in eight, like Asia is a massive area and we lump so much in there. So we start to unpack and um, explain the nuances that come with identity. And so I think once you start having that conversation, people start to realize like, oh, okay, just because this person is Latino doesn't mean that they're Mexican, right? They could be mm-hmm. from any number of Latin American countries, right. right? That all have their own histories, that all have their own nuances, all of that. So in the identity space, that's what we start to unpack. But what I've noticed in doing that, there's the people that are from marginalized communities start to kind of sit up a little taller because it's like, yeah, I haven't been able to say that, but that's not like, just because I'm black doesn't mean that I understand that experience. Right. And I even share, I, though I was raised here in the United States and most of my experiences here in the United States, I was born in the Caribbean. My family's all from the Caribbean. And so I have that cultural lens that shapes who I am. So when people assume and say crazy things to me about immigration, right. And I'm just like, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. I didn't become a U.S. citizen until 2016. Mm. Right. So, and I start to unpack why 2016 versus when we first got here, right? So now you start to understand like, oh, I can't make assumptions. I really need to get to know someone. I need to understand their story before I start to put them in a box or or try to dismiss them because that's what I think they need to be. So I know that was very long-winded, but (laughs) that was kind of the identity piece. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. And, you know, speaking of identity, I know that you have an incredible story. Your career journey has just been so impactful. But even before that, um, you've had like this, you had this rich experience um, growing up and things like that. Um, could you talk about how that experience growing up uh, impacted your, your career journey and, and what you're doing today? Oh, gracious. Um, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, you know, so I, I spoke about it. You know, my family um, immigrated to the United States when I was, I don't, I was shy of two. So was walking and talking, but very little when I got here. And I immediately knew as a child that my family was different. My father um, had an extremely heavy accent, right? He's, he's Bayesian, he's Barbadian. Um, My mother's from St. Vincent. So though they're two different islands with two different histories, all my friends who knew was like my family, my parents spoke funny, right? They just had this funny (laughs) accent. Um, I didn't listen to American music till I was in third grade. So again, my cultural, my home life was very Caribbean. My dad was a priest, so we constantly had priests in the house, you know, from different islands and different countries. So hearing different Caribbean accents and understanding that and eating Caribbean food was the norm for me. It wasn't until I got to college where I started connecting with other people of Caribbean heritage that I was like, oh, so I'm not the only one. 
I'm not kind of this outcast or I didn't have to wear this coat of I'm American ish. Right. (laughs) Um, I could talk about, you know, going to carnival. I can talk about, um, you know, drinking Mobi or having sorrow or whatever it was, you know, with a group of folks that I didn't have to explain it, nor did I have to, um, make excuses for certain things because they Mm -hmm. got it. Right. And so from that, I, I was a sociology major in college and I really wanted to understand cultural diversity and ethnicity, right? Because I was learning about my own at that time. I worked in the Office of Multicultural Affairs. Um, it was probably one of the first times I did a lot more work around what indigenous communities look like in Virginia. Um, mm. And so it just started to unpack so much for me in that everyone's experience is so unique and rich and beautiful. Um, And I was having a very difficult time understanding why there was so much hate toward that, right? And so it's like, how do we continue to uplift each other and learn and grow and have um, experiences that are outside of our own? Um, You know, my mom always joked, she was like, if there was any other child that was of a different culture, that was gonna be your friend, right? So like <laughs> I had a, a friend growing up um, her that lived next door whose grandmother was Filipino, right? So we were friends. I had friend who was half white, half Korean. I you know, w- went to college. I have another friend that's black and Filipino, friend that's, <laughs> that's just all of the, if they were anything other, they were probably my friend. And I love that because again, I got to experience their cultures when I went home with them, um, food and music and, and all of that. So it's it's something that I take into the work that I do now um, because there's just so much beauty in it. Right, I was gonna say, so if you know, your father as a priest, so you kind of have this uh, ability or capacity to galvanize communities in your, in your genes almost, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, my dad, um, so odd to me because I'm like, he's he was my dad, right? <laughs> like, yeah. I saw him as dad. <laughs> but um, I went back to Barbados a few years ago and, because my father had passed away and, you know, just kind of went and there was something very, um, I was listening to something and someone said, you know, oh, it's going to be at the Roy Thompson Center. And I'm like, the Roy Thompson Center? What is that? So I asked my mom, I'm like, mom, what, what is this Roy Thompson Center? Oh, the, one of the churches built a community center and named it after your father. What? <laughs> like, wow. and so I started to um, learn more how other people saw him, right? And it was all about community. It was all about gathering, you know, even in Virginia, um, he started a food pantry, kind of, well, kind of like a, where people can come, homeless folks can come to the church, right, to eat on a certain day. Um, and he galvanized the other churches, the Baptist churches, we're Episcopalian, Baptist churches and Catholic churches to be a part of this. And then when he moved on to another church, the city actually took it on as their project and they're still doing it now. So, you know, that's the legacy that, that I come from. Um, so community is, is so critical and, and essential to all of this. And I think that 
yeah, that that's a huge part of who I am. That's amazing. And I know that, you know, throughout your career journey, there have been some pivotal moments where you're like, okay, maybe I should just start my own thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. What was it? Is it was there one of those that made you feel like, okay, this is it's time for me to strike out on my own? Oh, yes. Um, yeah. And I can't say too much about it. But gotcha. what I <laughs> what I will say <laughs> is, you know, there there come these times where you, you just know, right? You kind of see writing on the wall and the beauty of that time for me was I was, one, I'm, I'm absolutely blessed to have like one of the best partners in the world. And he has always believed in me much more than I believed in myself. Um, so for years, he was just like, you just need to do your own thing. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't want to do that. You just need to do your own thing. No, I don't want to do that. And then I had a coach that asked me, where do you have the most impact inside or outside of the organization? And I said, inside, you know, I, I want to fight the good fight, but it was literally killing me. Like I was rushed to the ER several times, hair was falling out, developed ulcers. And when I made the decision, I was like, you know what? My health is not um, negotiable. Right. Like yeah. that is something that I need to, to stay on top of. And I can't let anything hinder that. And what I was noticing was in these some of these corporate spaces, people were negotiating health or do I continue to work for this paycheck? And I made the decision, you know what, it's time for me to go. Um, but I want to go on my own terms. And so while I was kind of still in role, uh, I had spoken to a cousin of mine who was a diversity consultant for 20 years. Um, I have another cousin who pivoted from law into doing home organizing and doing her own business. And the two of them, I was just like, okay, what do I need to know? What do I need to do? What are all the things to set up, you know, contracts or even just, um, you know, understanding how to do consulting work in this space. So I kind of did all of that. I got a coaching certification um, while I was out there. And then I partnered with another organization, um, White Men is Full Diversity Partners. And I was very upfront with them saying, I will facilitate for you all. But at the same time, I'm starting my own business. And the founder was amazing in saying, we'll help you build that foundation. We'll give you paycheck, right? While you do what you need to do to set up. And so I worked with them for a little over a year. And then I was like, all right, I'm good. <laughs> Thank you. And I still have a great relationship, you know, with them. And so it, it was just time for me to do that. And my goal was to start in November. I left my company job in September. I wanted to kind of kick off my company in November. September 15th, I had my first client. So I've not turned back. I, it's just, it's been wonderful. It's been absolutely wonderful. That is awesome. Um, and it seems like, you know, a part of that story uh, kind of came about because you just, you care so much about the work that you do. Is that right? Absolutely. And I feel like a lot of people might be kind of in a position where they're um, maybe they're not transitioning out of their company, but maybe transitioning to a new role, 
a new yeah. opportunity within the company or just trying to figure themselves out, especially when it comes to their um, their DEI journey. Um, so if you were to give them a little bit of advice in terms of that self-exploration journey, what, what would you say to them at this time? Oh, I love this question. Um, you know, so <laughs> what I actually did a few months after I left is I've looked at my life in the times that I made big leaps and big jumps and how I prepared for that. And so from that, I created um, what I call the plans model, right? So it's like, what is your plan? So the plans model is what is your purpose? Like, and that has to align with kind of your passion and your profession. Cause I love home decor, but ain't nobody gonna pay me to do it, right? So <laughs> how do you merge the two, your, your passion and your profession, like the skills that you bring to the table? Um, what are your limitations? So what, do you need? Is it a course that you need to take? Is it um, just some other skills that you need to build? So understanding what those limitations are. What actions are you going to take to start to fill in those gaps, right? So what are those limitations? What actions do you need to take? Do I need to sign up for this course? Do I need to finish this certification? Do I need to have a conversation with someone? So figuring out what those actions are. Who in my network can help me get to my goal? And I think one of the things that people think about with networking is, oh, how many people do I have on my LinkedIn? That's cool, but how many people do you actually know that can help you get from point A to point B, right? Or help you fill in some of those gaps or help you get the skills that you need or the experience that you need, right? So how do I really leverage my network in a way that helps me, but then it's mutually beneficial and I can help them as well too. And then um, PLNS, self-care, right? How are you gonna take care of yourself through this process? Because we so often get so caught up in the process of I just gotta do, I just gotta do, I gotta do. And we start to give and do these things out of an empty cup. So I often ask like, how are you filling your cup? What are you doing to take care of yourself? Um, because that's such a critical part of this work and the only way that you will be able to sustain doing this work. Um, and so that self-care piece is a critical part of the work that I do with my clients, um, protect, particularly those that are DEI practitioners. Man, that's so powerful. And it sounds so comprehensive. Um, how long did it take you to like to formulate that and just realize, okay, this is actually what I use to be successful? You know what? It actually took me sitting down and like, okay, where were the transitions in my life and what did I do? And I started seeing that pattern, yeah. right? So when I, <clears throat> I mentioned my um, undergrad is in sociology, I have a master's in education, higher education yeah. administration. Um, I ended up working for the company that owns the GMAT test. And part of my job was talking to people about going to get their MBA, right? And I'm talking about the value of the MBA and I'm drinking my own Kool-Aid because I'm like, yeah, I need to know management skills. I don't want to always kind of be in these types of roles. I need to understand how the business works. And I, at that time, kind of wanted to do my own thing, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, right? So again, I was like, all right, I wanna get my MBA. Who are my resources? Who is around me? I'm working with folks that are directors of admissions at MBA programs. 
I mean, I'm like right here. Let me go down the hall and talk to someone, right? So it was like, who is in my network that can help me? Great. Someone told me about a program at Johns Hopkins. Oh, fabulous. And my company, because they supported higher education, paid for that. Right. right? So it was like, those were my resources. That was all in my network. And so, okay, now I'm going to get my MBA. I switched over to tech and I was still in my MBA program. And part of my negotiation was, I need you all to finish paying for this MBA for me. Right. So again, it's like really stepping back. And when I think about it, I did that when I transitioned into tech. I did that when I transitioned out of tech. I did that when I transitioned out of higher education. It's who's in my network? What skills do I need? What am I going to do? How am I going to take care of myself through this process? Um, and, and it's just been helpful and success. I've been successful with it. And when I share it with other people and they're like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. This, this is a plan that I can follow. Um, and I, I just think that it's just so valuable. Wow, you really have all the keys. Um, and so if, if someone were to uh, reach out to you, um, how would they get in touch with you? Yeah, so a couple of different ways. You always go to my website, which is uh, theequityequationllc.com. Um, and so from there, you can kind of see all of our offerings, my coaching, my consulting work, um, also my podcast. Um, on their DEI After Five, where we talk about diversity and inclusion uh, topics. And I just have wonderful guests on there talking about all kinds of things. Um, you can always find me on LinkedIn. So it's Sasha Thompson on there or The Equity Equation there. Um, you can find me on Instagram at The Equity Equation or Facebook at The Equity Equation, all the places, The Equity Equation. That's awesome. So um, before we let you go, Sasha, um, if there was one action you would urge our listeners to take after this, um, what would that one action be? Start writing out your plan. Figure out what your passion is, align it with your purpose and your profession and start writing out that plan. That doesn't mean that you need to act on that right now because you might not be in a position to do that, but start writing it out start kind of sketching out what you really want to do and, and figuring out kind of the limitations, the actions in that network piece. Um, because if you continue to work on that over time, you'll get there. So that's, that's the one piece of advice I would give. Incredible. Thanks a lot, Sasha. Um, just really appreciate you for joining us for the Voices of Inclusion podcast. I hope you Absolutely. have a nice day. Thank you. You too. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to www.matheson.io and book a call to speak with us. The link is in the description. We're looking forward to connecting with you next time.